It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. Hello and welcome to the It's Going Down podcast. We're joined here today with Carrie Lee. Would you like to introduce yourself and your work? Sure. I'm actually um, an independent scholar, a writer and historian. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I got my bachelor's at Emory and master's and PhD at University of Georgia. I've lived in the South pretty much my whole life, except for you know a year of study abroad. And most of my writing is about the South and inequality and poverty and labor. And my my uh, time period of specialty is really the 19th century South. So I look at the late antebellum period, the Civil War and Reconstruction. And I'm really trying to bring a lot of this kind of history to the public right now. And I'm so grateful to be on your show to, to try to do some of that, because I think there are a lot of lessons um, from this time period, but also you know, the things that we're talking about today, you know, reparations, some of the biggest things that are going to be talked about in the next series of elections, we've got to know their actual roots and their actual history and, and able to be able to um, to actually inform policy, you know, on, on any kind of credible level. Based on your research and your work, what do you think the average American gets wrong about the history of the South and the Civil War? I think that definitely... Well, the, the, the biggest thing is that the slaves, the enslaved people freed themselves because I recently we just saw another mess up in Fox News talking about Americans freeing the slaves. And it was actually the enslaved people themselves who freed themselves by escaping to northern lines, escaping to the Union Army or by stopping work. You know, this is what W.E.B. Du Bois called um you know, the biggest uh, 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 labor strike in American history was when the enslaved decided to stop working for slaveholders. But more to the point of what I study in my first book, I think it's really this idea of the solid South, that all white Southerners benefited from slavery, that the poorest white believed he could become a slaveholder one day. You know, we've always heard that, that the poorest white man always at least knew that Maybe if he worked hard and earned enough money, he could he could enter into the slaveholding ranks. And also that all white Southerners proudly and eagerly fought for the Confederacy. All of this stuff is completely false. Uh, this was history that was written for a very specific purpose. It's a history written by white supremacist Southern men, by and large. Now, of course, recently a lot of that has changed. But what the general public knows and, you know, is way behind what, historians are producing in the last 20 or 30 years. And so we've got to really come out there right now and inform the public about what really happened during this time period. And what really happened was there was a lot of dissent in the South. There were a lot of unionists. Unionists were actually mainly in the upper South states. But in the deep South area that I study, the cotton South, mainly South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, that area, there were tons and tons of poor white men that were just, you know, not willing to go fight and die for, you know, the the wealth and property of slaveholders. And so I call them anti-Confederates. I think that's the best way to describe them. They just wanted to be left alone. They didn't even really know what was going on. Most of them were illiterate and uneducated. They didn't know what was going on politically. They lived in a society that was completely censored uh, at every level by these slaveholders. Yeah, we're definitely excited to dive into those different facets and parts of history. But first, in another interview, you stated how your own upbringing influenced uh, the work that you do now. And I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about that. 
Sure. I, people always ask if there was, you know, an aha moment. And I really can't say that there was. This was always kind of a mounting, you know, uh, snowballing effect kind of thing in my life. Because I, I was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. My parents were actually going to school down there. And Hattiesburg, Mississippi is in, you know, way deep in the south, not terribly far from the free state of Jones. So, you know, as a white southerner, the first few years of my life, I was actually in a racial minority. You know, all of my neighbors and friends were African-American. And then I moved to Metro Atlanta and we moved to a public school district right outside of the city, which was you know, one of the white flight districts. It was Newt Gingrich's district. And I, you know, I, I learned real quick about the, the intersection of race and class there and, and the kind of genteel racism of all of my my northern neighbors, northern transplant neighbors. And, you know, it, it was always something that didn't make sense to me. Um, the narrative I was told in school and the way that I saw race and class interplay on the ground. I would go back to my my grandmother was you know severely impoverished grew up with maybe a sixth or seventh grade education because she had to drop out of school and, and work either in cotton mills or picking cotton. And, you know, she struggled her whole life financially. And, and, and my mom grew up in this tiny little mill village house. And going back to that really poor section of town when I was a child and, a, and even a teenager, I would see that that section was completely different than the upper and middle class sections of town. Those sections of town were completely segregated racially. Well, you get to the poor section of town and it's completely integrated. And of course, I'm not saying that absolves poor people in any way of racism. They were definitely racist. I, I was raised, you know, in a racist culture, in a racist family, definitely. And but but it's a different type of racism because you make exceptions for people you personally know because you're constantly having to interact with people. You know, they're trading together, they're living together, they're working together. And and it's a, a much more nuanced um, narrative than we're taught in, in history textbooks. wanted to turn now to an essay that you wrote that's fantastic. It's uh, entitled War Happens in Dark Places Too. And it's about the history and the role that white, poor farmers uh, played and more importantly didn't play in the Confederacy and essentially about mass desertion on the side of soldiers. And I'm hoping that we can now get into that history. Sure. So one of the main um, themes that I push in my book is that, you know, this idea of there wasn't a solid South, that all white Southerners were not pro-Confederate. They weren't even pro-secession. They simply wanted to be, you know, left alone at home with their families to farm, to do whatever jobs they had. They did not want to go fight and die for slaveholders who were, you know, a minority of the white population at that time and a filthy rich minority who controlled everything. There was a lot of class resentment at this time. And so, you know, outside of the few reasons they had financially to join up with the Confederacy at the very beginning of the war, the Confederacy actually passes a conscription act in 1862. And that, of course, forces poor men into joining the Confederacy in droves. And so you have all these men who have sat out from joining on their own accord. And then you have all these men who are conscripted or who have taken some sort of bounty to, to go in the stead of a slaveholder who is conscripted. They're, they're abandoning the Confederate army in droves in 1863 and 1864. And this ultimately... I argue, and many other people argue, you know, helps lead to the demise of the Confederacy. Because essentially what's happening by these later years of the war is that the Confederacy is fighting a three-front war. They're fighting against the Union Army in the North. They're fighting against the enslaved who are freeing themselves and, and, and fighting back in many, many different ways. And then you've got all these poor whites and even, you know, lower middling class whites who who are refusing to fight for them. And so... This article that you mentioned, it was, I, I go to back to New Orleans. I have some family roots in New Orleans, so I go there several times a year. And this previous time, took a little day trip out to the Pearl River Swamp. And this is a place that I had written about in my book because it was a hotbed of you know, uh, anti-Confederate or Unionist 
layouts and deserters. Some of them were called mossbacks because literally they're living out in these swamps and woods and, and plant material would start growing on their, on their outfits. And so these are men who literally hid out the duration of the war and they, they learned how to hide out from the enslaved who had once learned from Native Americans, you know, they would rub onions and, and different herbs on their feet so that dogs couldn't track them. Uh, they, they actually communicated a lot of times with smoke signals. They, they had all sorts of different ways to communicate with each other and kind of evade any kind of Confederate soldiers who were coming and, and, and looking for them, looking for deserters. And so basically what kept these men going and alive to a large extent, it seems like, was not only help from white women, their, their white wives and children and family members who would bring them food, but there are many accounts of the enslaved themselves bringing food to these men. So it, it, it really does complicate this narrative of this strict, you know, uh, black-white divide in the South. Um, and, and you see, and there's some great, great uh, work coming out in the next few years on this type of relationship and how black and white Southerners, like poor working class Southerners banded together during the Civil War against the slaveholders. I mean, we're going to see soon in, in a dissertation that is being turned into a book right now about all of these cotton mill workers, these poor white cotton mill workers who are literally, you know, telling union officers where their uh, their bosses, who are also the area's biggest slaveholders, of course, where all of their fine jewelry is, where all their fine clothes are. They're doing the exact same things that you hear from the WPA slave narratives that the enslaved did themselves during these years, looting things from the masters, you know, alerting union armies as to where people are hiding out, where to go. Uh, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting narrative, and I think we're going to see some great scholarship coming out on it. So understanding that the amount of people fighting and also deserting uh, during the Confederate War meant there were far less people that were at home that could engage in the slave patrols, you know, the de facto police force of the slaves, uh, thus allowing the mass desertion and the general strike of enslaved people and, and further crippling the Confederacy. That's right. absolutely, absolutely correct. And the other kind of flip side to that is that the same time that they passed the Conscription Act, the Confederacy passed the Conscription Act in 1862. Well, right on the heels of that, they passed something entitled the 20 Negro Act, which exempts slaveholders from having to be conscripted into the Confederate Army if they owned more than 19 human beings. And so you have all of this class resentment from point. This is when the, the, you know, refrain of rich man's war, poor man's fight really, mm -hmm. really, you know, takes, um, takes on a, a broad understanding and a, and, and a big role in, in the war. It's these two policies right here. Just curious about the primary source material that's available that either talks about, uh, what poor whites were doing at this time or either uh, rich or elite whites, how scared they were of what was going on at the time. How do you go about finding that material? Right. I, I had to be very creative in how I looked for to find these people's voices. And so I did end up using a lot of legal records, you know, local county court legal records, also death records. You know, they're actually kind of trial transcripts of the last days of people's lives in coroner's inquests in the South at a local level. And they provide incredible, you know, just like an intimate view into somebody's final days. And it, and it shows the messiness and the, you know, the levels of interracial sex going on. I mean, it's, it, it really nuances the idea of race in, in American history, but also, as to the Confederate soldiers, like run-of-the-mill Confederate soldiers, I actually did get to use a record group that is not used a lot in um, the Deep South because it's, it's Tennessee Civil War veterans questionnaires. And these were sent out to men around the time of World War I, veterans. And so most of the, the people who answered the questionnaires they were men from Appalachia or, you know, some were from Memphis and, and more slave holding, cotton holding uh, southern areas, deep south kind of areas. But 
anybody who lived in the state of Tennessee was given one of these questionnaires if they fought for, for either the Confederacy or the Union Army. So you did get a lot of people that used to live in the Deep South going up and answering these questions. And these questions were very pointedly about class and how class affected um, their views, not only on secession, but on fighting for the Civil War and who they chose to fight for. And you know, every single one of these men, if their fathers were not landholders, or even if they owned a little bit of land but not slaves, they were very much opposed to secession, very much opposed to the war. They talk about how much class hatred there was. And the deeper you get into the South, the, the more, the higher percentages of slaves, you know, as you approach a slave society instead of a society of slaves, like they, uh, um, like you would call the upper South, when you have these high, high levels of enslaved people, mm-hmm. class tensions between whites really exacerbate, right? Because your level of insecurity in a state where you're holding more than, sometimes more than half your population in slavery, we still don't know how violent a society these slave societies were because it has to take a hell of a lot of violence, the constant threat of violence, and and surveillance like we can't even imagine in order to keep that many people enslaved constantly. Yeah, so we're going to talk more about that aspect in a little bit. Uh, but first, uh, back to the essay, War Happens in Dark Places. I'm curious, when you're talking about these uh, desertion societies, uh, people living out in the swamps, how large of a population are we talking about? Is this a very, um, is this a, a large group of people? Uh, you know, kind of dotted across the landscape, or is this more of a diverse collection of people spread out over a wide geographic area? That's a great question. It really varied by where you were looking. So in the case of the Pearl River Swamp, you know, it was it was probably much more individualistic, and they would, you know, they called it tic-tac with tic-tacking with their signals, smoke signals and different, you know, drum beats that they could communicate with each other. But they seem to be um, fewer and farther between individuals. But at the same time, anywhere in kind of on the fringes of the cotton south, so not in the really fertile black belt where most of the cotton is being raised. So areas like, um, you know, the foothills of Appalachia and Appalachia, and down in the very south, the wiregrass regions where the soil is not as good, those areas where there tended to be higher percentages of poor whites, some of those areas were in open revolt, um, completely open revolt, like we've seen in the free state of Jones, but, but, you know, in South Alabama, the same thing, you know, in North Georgia, the same thing. Any of these areas where there were enough poor whites to really band together, the Confederacy was basically driven out and the towns and, and rural areas were taken back over in large part by these bands of anti-Confederates by the end of the war. You know, in regards to Newton Knight, and we will talk about the film, uh, the free state of Jones in a second, but um, and I think we kind of already know the answer to this, but why aren't figures like Newton Knight celebrated more uh, within the South? Why is there, this constant uh, reaffirmation from some segments of uh, society um, to prop up uh, the Confederacy, to prop up, uh, you know, slaveholders, to prop up the people that formed the KKK and so on. Well, I think your your former guests had some great uh, comments on this as well. All the brave graduate students and faculty at UNC who have worked to get Silent Sam down and, and, and worked on behalf of racial justice there really articulated it well. But basically, this is all manufactured, right? This is manufactured, quote, history long after the war, long after Reconstruction. And Karen Cox is really the authority on this. She shows in her book, Dixie's Daughters, that you know, this lost cause narrative and it not only being pushed in children's textbooks and cartoons and any kind of popular culture, but also all these monuments, these resulting monuments, they're pushed by groups of elite white women in the South. These are elite, like highest class white women, you know, direct descendants of slaveholders. They form uh, what we still know now. There are groups all over the South now, da- the Daughters of the Confederacy. And starting basically in the mid 1890s, mid 1890s, and we'll talk more about that date in a minute, and then continuing basically uh, their heyday until about World War One. You know, looking at those dates alone, it tells us a lot about why and how this narrative is crafted. 
um, not only are these women, you know, starting to see their their fathers and grandfathers, people who fought in the Civil War, Confederate uh, veterans, die off and you know really really age if they're still alive. Um, they're wanting to honor you know their memory and kind of kind of make history look at them as heroes and you know being on the right side of history. So they're trying to rewrite the narrative for that. But the more important uh, aspect, I believe. And I think that we need to, as scholars, kind of make this, tie this more together, is that what's going on in the mid-1890s South? And populism, populism, big P populism. And this is a huge movement. This is the first time since the first few years of Reconstruction where there is a multiracial coalition of laborers, of working class people, um, in, in open, uh, in flagrant like rejection of the upper classes you know you have really strident um demands you have black and white farmers joining together and and unions and coalitions and populism does not i think does not get the credit it deserves in kind of showing how white elites at this time really become fearful of this black white coalition of working class people and then kind of use this um, this narrative of the lost cause, not only to engender um, white solidarity, but of course this goes hand in hand with you know the worst times of Jim Crow and all of the resulting violence during these this period as well. I mean, they use violence to crush out any kind of coalition between races. Anytime that kind of stuff starts, you know, there's a reason that the Great Migration it vast majority of it is in the 19 teens. It's because there are all these race riots going on in this, in the deep South, all and, and throughout the South, all these race riots. And when I say race riots, we need to change the, the name. These are essentially anybody who's done well in black business, anybody who's done well as a black farmer, anybody who's saving money, earning money and advancing in society. They are harassed, intimidated, um, completely uh, beaten, arrested, you know, killed in numbers that we still don't know how many to the point that that people are literally refugees, you know, from the South. These, these African-Americans fleeing the South are political and social and economic refugees of, you know, white racial violence during this time. Mm-hmm. And so all of this kind of, you know, needs to be understood as happening together, I think. But a man grows with his own two hands ought to belong to him, yeah? How's that scripture go, Jasper? It says from the book of Galatians. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. What you sow, you should reap. What you put in the ground, you should take out of the ground. Yeah. They say they're taking 10%. No, they leave us 10%, sir. Leave 10%. Do you think they're taking 10% from that plantation owner over in Natchez? No, sir. Huh? You think they're taking 10% from him? No, sir. How about this? What you say we go out there and we pick it clean? There's a hundred of us, yeah? We pick it clean all one day. We do that? Yes, sir. We pick it clean. We hide it away. We divide it amongst ourselves later on. Meanwhile, by the time they get down here, we done scatter it. How's that sound to you? Whose corn is it? Whose corn is it? Whose corn is it? Sounds like perfect charity to me. Let's do it. Find a red cob, get a shot of corn whiskey. Curious your thoughts on the film, The Free State of Jones, uh, how accurate you feel the film is, and also, do you like it? So, and it's been a while since I've watched it, but I mean, overall, I was really happy that this narrative itself is finally being exposed, right? I mean, that's, you don't ever hear of this kind of stuff in the South. The South right. is so kind of overplayed and, and, you know, almost turned into a caricature of itself in major Hollywood films that just exploring kind of the fringes of, of interracial relationships, I think that's progress. And there, you know, there's certainly some problematic things that are, you know, almost inevitable whenever a really nuanced history is turned into a Hollywood film. But I firmly believe that we need more stories, more films like this. Like I, I would absolutely love to turn masterless men into a documentary or something like that someday. 
I, because I think film is a really good way uh, to get to the masses, to bring history to the masses. And, you know, I, I hate to say it because I love the format of a book and I, I, I love books themselves, everything about them. But the reality is a lot of people are not going to sit down and read a book, right? the vast majority of people don't want to sit down and read a book about some small part of history. And so I think as historians, we've got to figure out other ways to get more nuanced history to the masses, because they're certainly not being taught, you know, this kind of history in, in, in K through 12 education and sometimes not even in college. Um, but I want to add that that film, uh, Free State of Jones, is based on the work and the research of my colleague, my friend, and somebody I consider a mentor in many ways, Victoria Bynum, Vicki Bynum. Um, my work would have been impossible without her groundbreaking research on poor whites in the 1990s and 2000s, along with um, Jeff Foray, who explored the underground economy between African-Americans and poor whites, the huge underground trading economy during slavery. And Charles Bolton. These are people who really, you know, even before anything was digitized, were able to get at a largely illiterate people and and did some census work. Charles Bolton did a lot of census work. So, I mean, their research was invaluable. Just to return again to the Free State of Jones and Newton Knight, I'm just curious if you can talk a little more about these areas that were in open revolt to the Confederacy. I know one of the most powerful scenes in the Free State of Jones is when the free territory is set up and Newton Knight reads out kind of a set of principles that will kind of govern the area. And they're very socialistic about, you know, returning land and people controlling their own labor and, you know, the destruction of white supremacy and slavery, obviously. Just curious your thoughts on this. I don't know that we have enough information right now to know that during the war years, we certainly know that, or we're starting to know that, I should say, that in the early years of Reconstruction, that was certainly the case. And basically what happens in the early years of Reconstruction, many scholars have have said that these few years were probably the best chance that a biracial coalition between blacks and poor whites in the South could have happened. And the little bit of research that has been done on this absolutely, you know, shows that that's probably the case because early in those years people were so so poor i mean literally we have mass starvation on a level you can't imagine in a lot of these deep south states especially in in states like mine georgia you know where, where the state has just been plundered and pillaged and burned i mean these people are literally starving and so when the federal armies come into their areas You've got poor whites and, and poor blacks just flooding into these places to try to be fed, to try to get a meal, to try to, to have a safe place to sleep at night. And and so there's immediately kind of you know a, a shared feeling of, of being refugees together in some ways. And as we see the uh, the emergence of these black politicians throughout the South, many of them were literate somehow uh, living in this society where, you know, a literate enslaved person could could be lynched and killed at any time but many of them were literate many of them you know, were leaders in their churches were pastors ministers and and had a lot of uh, a lot of years of, of knowing how to lead a congregation of knowing how to um, talk to the masses these black leaders get up and actually lead both blacks and poor whites among in these kind of socialist ways like they, they are calling for a radicalization of southern society you know taking back all of the land that they had worked for years and years it's it's people are literally talking about reparations we've got this great story of this black radical one of the the first black lawyers in america he was born into slavery in south carolina in the 1830s escaped from slavery to boston becomes a lawyer when literally the month that uh the Civil War ends, he comes back down to the Sea Islands of Savannah, same as Aaron Alpeoria Bradley, and he is just an absolute character. But he leads the people of the Sea Islands and, and Savannah and, and the, those areas in open revolt of not only the slaveholders, but the Federals, and says, this is your land. You know, he's, 
He's actually literally calling for reparations. It's the first time I've seen anybody call for reparations a month after the war is over. And he urges them to stay on the land, to take everything that's theirs, that the crops they've raised are theirs because it's it's made with their labor. And and so you do see some of these kind of socialistic, in many ways, communistic, like people are wanting to live in communes. And, and there is this kind of language that I think we need to pay more attention to. And then there are certainly more dissertations and books coming out. I know in the next few years that are going to kind of confirm that this was possible at this time. But then, of course, by later reconstruction, there's several different reasons um, as to why this is crushed out by the elites and, and doesn't end up actually ever happening. to go back to something you said in regards to interracial relationships I think this is very interesting we know in the 1600s that was one of the first kind of racial codes that was passed even before the United States was even a country Uh, but I'm curious you know what was the extent uh, that people were engaging in interracial relationships and you know very much giving the finger to uh, white supremacy in the south at the time sure Um, so basically I argue that interracial relationships were actually relatively common during the antebellum period, that racial categories were much more permeable than they were at, you know, than they would become after the end of the civil war. And that just given the abject poverty of a lot of poor whites, you know, it's been shown that there's this huge underground economy that I alluded to earlier, that, that poor whites are essentially trading usually liquor with the enslaved who are, you know, selling whatever goods they're raising on the plantation and, and usually corn or meat. And so there's this huge network of people trading together. But if you really get into some of the legal records, there's also a huge social interaction going on. You know, alcohol and alcoholism was really, really prevalent in the cotton South. And it was not uncommon for the enslaved, for free blacks, and even poor whites to all drink together and socialize and gamble. And of course, uh, you know, this was what planters always feared the most was that when you have alcohol, you know, a lot of times that leads to sex. And the problem was in these Southern states that is, was that the babies, uh, babies legally took on the, the legal status of their mothers. And so, you know, it, it wasn't usually anything that that uh, poor poor white men would not usually be prosecuted if they were sleeping with or even raping 
enslaved women. But you do actually see uh, poor white men being prosecuted for different things. It's actually usually, you know, alcohol laws or vagrancy or something that's easier to prove than miscegenation. Um, but when they're sleeping with free black women, there's a problem because free black women would give birth to more free black people. And so those situations are prosecuted. And then we also see poor white women are having are often having relationships with enslaved men. And sometimes this is part of the trade network. Sometimes, you know, poor white women were the ones obviously who were working as prostitutes throughout the region. And usually this was just during, you know, hard time, you know, a really hard winter where their you know, kids needed food. This was not, you know, a, a long term uh, occupation for them. This was just what they had to resort to in really hard times. But so if, if a poor white woman would become impregnated by an enslaved man, you know, the baby takes her status. So essentially poor white women had the power to create this whole you know, population of free black children. And so this, the idea of free blacks in these slave societies was complicating the entire narrative. And basically what happens right before secession is that slaveholders say, we're not having free blacks anymore at all. You know, free blacks either have to flee the state. And if you're not by this, you know, this state, then you basically have to pick a master. And so, of course, interracial sex of any kind added to this free black population. And they wanted nothing more than to get rid of this and to not have this problem of of black people who are not enslaved to complicate the racial narrative and, and the labor narrative. And and so there was a, it was a great policing on especially poor white women's sexuality. You see poor white women thrown into jail all the time or um, into, even into prison for vagrancy or drinking alcohol or selling alcohol to, to slaves. We're going to turn now towards talking about your book published in 2017, Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South. And just real quick, can we just define the term antebellum for those of us that may be unfamiliar with it? Sure. Antebellum just means before the Civil War. So prior okay. to 1861, I really start this study in about the 1830s or 1840s. Gotcha. Can you just describe uh, in the book Masterless Men, what are the general takeaways and overall thesis of the book itself? So in Masterless Men, I actually argue many different things, but I think probably importantly, I should clarify that poor whites in this case are defined as white people who don't own any land or any slaves. And typically they own very, very little. These are people that often live hand to mouth. And I, I estimate that they're at least one third of the white population in these slave societies that I talk about in the Deep South. And my main argument is that instead of slavery elevating all white people and being good and profitable for all white people, is that what happens in the South, in the Deep South, in the 1830s and 40s, is that there's about 800,000 enslaved people sold from the Upper South into the Lower South. And when this happens, it displaces a lot of poor white laborers who had always labored, uh, you know, just as day laborers or as tenant farmers or sharecroppers on the larger plantations of these, you know, these big slaveholders. And so basically slavery, I argue, was bad in many ways and just socioeconomically. Of course, I would never, ever compare it to what the enslaved went through. That is a completely different thing. I just want to make that clear. I, I don't compare those issues at all. White slavery was not a thing. But they lived, um, they, they were socioeconomically detrimentally impacted by it. They knew this fact. They knew that slavery was bad for their livelihoods, bad, you know, kept them constantly unemployed, underemployed, could have made the men into a migratory labor force who never had any kind of um, consistency in wages or pay, which led, of course, to fractured family lives and women heading households much of the time and, and, really no marriages at all um, on any kind of governmental or, or church level. You know, these are people that had to, had to abide by short-term relationships because their, their lived reality necessitated it. And basically what happens in the 1840s and 50s is that 
these white laborers who had been displaced in agriculture, the ones who hadn't kind of dropped out of the labor force altogether, they were they tended to be working in the new industries, you know, um, building roads, infrastructure, building bridges, uh, railroads or any kind of extractive industries. And and they were also given like the worst work. Right. Because slave property was valuable property. So slaveholders did not want to endanger the lives or even the well-being of enslaved people because that would be a huge economic loss to them. And so they put poor whites in these the worst jobs where it didn't matter if they would die. Right. These are the people digging ditches and then and any kind of, you know, dealing with explosives and things like that, where if they died, you know, they just get another one, basically. And by the 1840s and 50s, class discontent among these poor whites, it was really reaching a fever pitch. And in the 1850s, all of these. They're basically nascent labor unions. They call themselves associations, mechanics associations, basically anybody who doesn't work in agriculture are banding together and petitioning the governors and and and, you know, telling slaveholders and politicians that if they don't do something to protect their jobs and protect their wages, from having to compete with enslaved labor and not only that having to compete with free black laborers because free blacks always undercut poor white wages as well um and i I do want to make the aside that it wasn't only racially based they were actually also protesting against having to compete with unfree prison labor which at the time in these states were was overwhelmingly white so any kind of unfree labor, they're saying we literally can't make a living. And they actually are starting to threaten to withdraw their support for slavery altogether if something wasn't done to protect their jobs and their wages. And people are getting they're getting angrier and angrier into the 1850s. And they actually even argue that you know, secession and even the Civil War starts in Charleston because Charleston in the 1850s, what's happening there is a. South Carolina's enslaved population is then being sucked off to the West, to the Western, you know, the new soil states of Mississippi and Texas and Arkansas. And so they're losing a lot of their black laborers while at the same time in the 1840s, the mid 1840s, they've got an influx of Irish and German laborers, white laborers who are coming and unionizing and really demanding, uh, you know, rights as workers. And you can't control poor white labor in the same way you can control brutalized enslaved labor. You can't beat them into submission the same way. And so South Carolinians are are literally trying to reopen uh, the transatlantic slave trade in the 1850s because they wanted to bring more black laborers in because they knew they could brutalize them and make them work harder and faster. So in this context about the fear from the elites of possible slave insurrections and also poor whites pushing for reforms, pushing for better conditions, was there any examples of these two forces coming together or recognizing each other as participants in some sort of common struggle, if at all? There absolutely were. I mean, you actually see it all the time if you actually really go looking for it. Um there are so, so, so many little inchoate uh, planned revolts and rebellions at the local level between slaves and poor whites, the enslaved and poor whites, um, you know, trying to escape or trying to overthrow their masters. Anytime you see a jailbreak or a prison break, generally in the south, in the deep south, it's it's generally you know uh, an interracial endeavor. But you also see. In the 18, in the late 1850s, a lot of poor whites saying things politically and it's getting printed in papers because they're literally talking about the lynchings of all of these white people who are saying anything to, in support of, you know, either the Republican party or abolitionism. I mean, it, it was totally illegal to say anything like that, right? You could be killed in most of these states for even having a piece of literature that talked about abolitionism. Slaveholders are, are, had a complete 
completely censored, surveilled society. Again, like we can't imagine. They're going through the mail. They anytime somebody enters a book enters the region, anytime somebody with books enters the region, they're going through all of that because they desperately want to keep knowledge out of the South. They desperately don't want Yeah, and they don't want anybody to know anything. And I argue that I mean they, they keep poor whites illiterate for multiple reasons, right? There's no system of public school in the South. Um, in these deep south states prior to the Freedmen's Bureau coming in in the you know, mid-1860s. There's no way for these people to learn how to read and write because the enslaved were not allowed to read and write. And I, I argue that in the underground economy, it'd be very easy for poor whites to trade, you know, reading and writing lessons for for some food you know it would be very easy for them to organize and band together and so you know we it's the long you know american story of keep the masses illiterate and keep them ignorant of what's going on at the highest levels of government and you can control everybody how would you politically define that system um it was i mean it was uh, I mean, it was fascism, right? I, I, I think that's the best the best way. I mean, it's a, it's a police state. It's a complete police state. Everything yeah. you do is policed. I haven't even gotten into, of course, there's the slave patrols, which are um, manned by slaveholders and, uh, you know, higher class yeoman farmers. And they actually not only police the enslaved, but also free blacks and poor whites. I think this is one of the more interesting things about your work. But in past interviews, uh, you've stated how... It is hard for us in the current day to comprehend physically the level of violence that was at play during this period in the South. And I think that there's still just kind of this romantic view of the South in the pre-Civil War period. And just kind of the vision that we have of it is just this wide, expansive, open place of of fields and swamps. Like, you know, how could it possibly be a police state when it looks kind of this serene Right. I, I mean, it, it is totally a police state and, and the kind of moonlight and magnolias gone with the wind, you know, big plantation beauty. You know that again, that is all PR for a narrative that is all PR for for white supremacy. Right. I mean, that's that's basically what it does it is is it, it gets rid of all of all of the reality, all of the, the brutal reality of what the slave South was and. Again, so you've got these slave patrols who are who are patrolling everybody, everything anybody's doing. But you also have all these vigilance committees, again made up of upper middling and upper class men and white men, and and they're policing everybody in the South. They're lynching people with no evidence if they even suspect you of having you know some kind of relationship with a black person or or some kind of um, you know if you said you know. During the secession movement, if you hurrahed for Lincoln, you would be lynched. Um, and then, so all of these people, these vigilance committees, they're also called Minutemen groups. They come under all these different names. They're, they're basically organizations of, of terror. I argue that in many ways, they're the precursors to the Klan. Uh, and many of them are, are actually descendants. Um, you know, there's actually a, a very strong... Um, body of literature that shows that the early clan, those were the sons of big major slaveholders. Those are people trying to make sure that, that blacks and whites don't, blacks and poor whites don't um, coalesce politically. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, it's always been there. And, and I think a lot of, again, a lot of literature, as things get digitized, as history, uh, as different parts of our history becomes digitized, this is going to really prove that point as to how violent it was. So since we're talking about the Ku Klux Klan in the context of Reconstruction and the post-Reconstruction period, I'm curious, what was the class background of people that were part of the Klan and also the people that were you know, funding them and directing them? The popular perception in American culture is that Organized racism in the South is largely made up of working class and poor whites that just, quote, hate 
black people. But what's the reality? So the reality is that the Klan's class makeup does change over time. In the early years, it is, in the first few years after emancipation, it is definitely the sons of slaveholders, like very mm-hmm. high net worth individuals who are, because they're, they are mainly terrorizing blacks, but they're also terrorizing scalawags, any kind of white Southerners who are voting Republican or going to Republican rallies or, you know, interacting with blacks on any level. They're, they're literally going out and, and lynching and terrorizing poor whites who are politically aligning with blacks as well. Um, there are multiple, multiple accounts of this. But again, you know, after the first few years, by, by late Reconstruction, when, um, as W.B. Du Bois argues, as I argue, many other people, there is a hardening of, of racial lines. There's kind of, um, you know, this the race and class diverge and poor whites for, for multiple reasons realign with upper class whites. And by that point, they certainly, you know, compose mu- much of the ranks of the Klan. And, but, the leadership of the Klan has always been, quote, to the manor born. These have always been the elite men of a town. They have, they've always been, you know, the big lawyers, the big judges, the people that, the big bankers, people that run the towns. They have always been the people in power. And because they were never, there was never any kind of reparations for the war. There was never any kind of, um, you know, taking land back from the people who started the war. Well, their descendants are still the people in power in most of these southern states. Interesting. You know, I wanted to ask as well, was there any examples of poor whites being involved in the abolitionist movement in any capacity? So that would have been much more common in the upper South. And the the, the primary Southern abolitionist is actually Cassius Clay um, and, from Kentucky. But he was, you know, a very, very wealthy, you know, son of slaveholders and slaveholder himself. But you know, you had to have that kind of wealth and influence to be able to say anything about abolitionism, abolitionism in the South and not be lynched and killed, right? I mean, this is the kind of, there's no free speech at all. We have to understand that. And it, again, it gets worse the farther South you go. So in these deep South states, anytime the word abolitionism is uttered by a poor white, anytime the word Lincoln is uttered, anytime, you know, any kind of anti-party line, anti-Confederate, anti-secession sentiment is uttered. People can die. People can be tarred and feathered. People can be, you know, ridden on a rail with their heads shaved and, and put on the, uh, the, they put them on the colored car railroad train, you know, out of the state and, and threaten, threaten them. They'd kill them if they ever come back. Um, you know, people, white people in these deep South states, are still being arrested for speech and publicly whipped. I wanted to return now to the subject of uh, Reconstruction, and obviously people like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who we mentioned several times in this discussion and we have on this podcast before, but and of course we encourage people to read his classic book, uh, Black Reconstruction. But you were saying that after the Reconstruction period, uh, whites kind of began uh, to regress and kind of take a more reactionary uh, position. I'm curious if we can return to that. You know, what role did they play both in terms of pushing more towards a liberatory aspect and also pushing towards a reactionary one as well? I argue that we should conceive of emancipation as not only emancipating African-Americans in the South, but that we should also see that it, brings a lot of freedoms and and benefits and privileges to poor whites in the region as well. And there are different ways that we can look at this. One is through labor itself. I mean, again, these were people who were competing with brutalized enslaved labor throughout you know, the antebellum and Civil War eras. After emancipation, they at least had the chance to to sell their labor in a, quote, free market, of course, you know, as I and many other scholars of this era and even many economists show, this wasn't actually really truly free labor because of all the coercive contracts and, and different ways of, of policing laboring people at the time. But this is as close as they're going to get. And number two, I also argue that poor whites in the South had a chance to become landholders during the uh, post 
emancipatory period because of not only the the kind of destruction of Southern society and the fact that some of the bigger planters were finally selling off some smaller parts, some smaller lots or smaller you know parcels of land, but also because of the Homestead Acts. And if we look at the Homestead Acts, this is the biggest entitlement program in American history. And at the same time, the federal government is telling black people who had given generations and generations and generations to unfree and slave labor, the people that have lived through the brutality of this, they're telling them, sorry, we can't give you 40 acres and a mule. They're literally giving out 160 acres to any white person who wants it in the American West and even in the American South in some areas. And this is basically an area of land close to California and Texas is given away to white people and not just white citizens, but white immigrants for virtually for free. At the same time, we're telling enslaved, you know, formerly enslaved people, we're not giving you 40 acres and a mule. And so the failure of, of this is, you know, has major repercussions today. But thus said, poor whites could get, you know, land through Homestead X. Um, number three is the fact, like I said, there was no public education. There was kind of no public um, infrastructure, any kind of social safety net in the South for poor white people, that all comes about with the Freedmen's Bureau. You know, the, the fact that people are coming into the South and building schools and churches for black people actually ends up benefiting white people who had not had schools before. And so they have the chance at an education. And then that's when all of this becomes really important in racial privilege and, and these white people are being, these poor white people are being courted after the, the 15th amendment, which allows black men to vote. White, poor whites are being courted by upper class whites. And, and, and these people are really trying to drive this idea of, um, you know, white solidarity and banding together over race so that they can blunt, you know, the, the black vote, basically. Turning now to present day, I know that after Unite the Right in Charlottesville in 2017, you wrote extensively about the rise of the alt-right and white nationalism and its connection to the Confederacy and Southern history. And I'm curious, you know, if you look at uh, the writings of somebody like Richard Spencer, who was one of the organizers of Unite the Right, I mean, writes extensively and, you know, praises people within the Confederacy and talks about how they articulated um their belief in literal human inequality that whites were above and superior to blacks. And they state that that would be the cornerstone and kind of the starting point of a white ethno state uh, that they conceive of to be their revolutionary project. And I'm curious, would you conceive of, and would you say it's fair to say that the Confederacy itself was an ethno state? I, I think it was absolutely, but Again, it didn't privilege all whites. And so I think we must also think of it as an oligarchy or uh, aristocracy because you do have these few super, super wealthy, you know, a very small percentage, super, super wealthy, major slaveholders controlling everything, controlling you know every statute on the book, controlling every office of real power. Uh, I mean, controlling loans, controlling money. I mean, everything was controlled by these same few people. And, you know, the the, the one thing that they all believed in, James uh, Hammond included, is not only were black people supposedly made unequal to whites, but that there was a hierarchy within whiteness as well. And that poor whites were actually ethnically even different you know, on a different kind of racial scale. They weren't full, you know, fully quite white. Um, many times they're actually referred to as yellow or sallow or, you know, that kind of racially uh, classification. Um, and these men, they believed in aristocracy. There's, there's a real push towards restricting the vote. There are, also, there are all sorts of ways to disenfranchise poor whites at this time. But, you know, their idea was was very clearly one of an educated elite running everything and everybody else is some sort of common laborer for for their benefit yeah well i mean we would argue that if if there was some sort of fascist ethno state created that that would exactly be how society would be organized i mean i think you know the idea that 
you know, these people want some sort of, you know, white commune where everybody's the same is, you know, obviously not true. I mean, they would totally institute a society exactly like that and have, you know, extreme divisions. And I think that's kind of what's so bizarre about um, uh, this kind of like mythical idea of creating some sort of ethno state as if everybody's going to be equal and everybody's going to be the same. And I think that's why looking at the Confederacy and not only why it collapsed, but also just, you know, the class tensions within it is really important and just showing that, you know, at times when that type of society has been so articulated, um, you know, and had it like its own ideology kind of front and center. I mean, the, the reality is, is, I mean, nothing that I think anybody would want to live in, you know. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a great point. And, and I think, again, just doing things like this by, by trying to destroy the idea of the lost cause by, by telling so many white Southerners who are waving a Confederate flag or really think that their ancestors, you know, were, were fighting for the Confederacy honorably and willingly to, to at least let them know that that might not have been the reality for, for a lot of these cases. And to at least get them to start thinking about what does that mean? What does that mean for how I identify myself as a right. person? Well, speaking of that, I mean, this is a very huge and broad question, but you know, I know you've written about this too, but what do you think the rise of Trumpism in the U.S. tells us about white supremacy in the U.S. today? So I think it tells us that white supremacy is alive and well, and more blatant than it's been certainly in my lifetime. Um, I mean, it's it's it really is quite frightening, and I hate to say that, but the the brazen openness of it all, and then that there's no real repercussions for for most people that are spewing this kind of hatred. In fact, it, it makes a lot of people a hell of a lot of money. You know, it, it makes me think, and again, thinking as a historian, not as an alarmist. You know, we've got to stop normalizing it. And actually really fight back because the deep divisions that Trump and the kind of larger alt-right racist people and businesses, you know, Fox News included, who drive and exacerbate this hatred. These divisions, they're not going to just disappear the next time we elect a Democrat. You know, no matter how progressive or leftist or forward looking this person is, this is not going to change this administration and the culture around it. You know, they're, they're getting filthy rich every day off of this. But the hatred that they've whipped up and the racism and the sexism and homophobia and xenophobia, these wounds are unfortunately going to take a lot of work and I think probably a very long time to heal. The only thing that, that I can think of as, as kind of the silver lining here is that I do think that this is in many ways a last, the kind of the last gasp of the, the kind of white supremacy we know from the, the baby boomer generation, right? I mean, I think these guys see that there is a sea change among a lot of the younger people in this country, and they're terrified. They're terrified. That's that's why they can't stand any of the, the you know the young new um, representatives. That's why they are absolutely terrified of what's going to happen when they lose total total control and total power in this country. And so I'm I'm at least hoping that so much of this race baiting and 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 out, you know just outright horrible racist language, I hope that the damage that it's done is really showing how how afraid they are that that they see that the tide is turning and that there will be real change in America at some point in the near future. You know, one of the last things I wanted to ask is that, do you feel that there is hope in the spreading of this history, having uh, social and cultural and political impacts on everyday working class and poor white people now? And do you think that, you know, if this history can be disseminated enough and picked up by enough people that uh, people can see that, look, there's an alternative that, you know, they can be proud of something, but proud in a different way, proud of people who fought back against the power structure, against white supremacy and for their own interests, but in a totally different way than what they were told growing up. 
I definitely think so because I think, again, as we see, like the people that are really spending their time and money and efforts to defend all of these these lost cause, you know, uh, monuments. These are mainly people over 40, over 50 usually, right? These are this is an older generation. It doesn't seem like younger people are so dedicated and so worried about some monument, you know, on their courthouse steps. They really. They, they have they have more important things to worry about, right, than whether a monument changes in the downtown area. They really, that's not their main concern. This is something that, you know, an older generation of people can't stand. I don't, I don't know if it has to do with the, the generation they were brought up with. I mean, you have to think that, that the generation of whites that are really out there defending this stuff, they were brought up in Jim Crow. They were raised during Jim Crow, of course. Of course, they're going to have some kind of emotional attachment because, I mean, unless they have some kind of major psychological reckoning, you know, actually dealing with why these things are bad, that takes a whole lot of introspection and and self-reflection and and choices and privileges you've gotten in your life. I mean, that takes some real kind of self-work. But um, I guess I've been arguing on on a broader scale and I need to lay this out in a long form piece soon, but it's not enough for, for us white allies to simply be allies anymore. You know, we created white supremacy, we benefit from white supremacy, and we maintain white supremacy even if we tacitly maintain it. So we've gotta be the ones, we must be the ones on the front lines for racial justice, not just supporting, not just, you know, um, not just Oh, I'm there if you need me. We need to be the ones on the front lines fighting for racial justice and change everything from tearing down Confederate monuments to pushing for things like economic reparations. Well, on that note, where can people follow you on social media, find your work and also buy your book? So the best way to follow me is definitely Twitter. That's going to be way more updated than even my website. I'm also on LinkedIn, but my website is kerryleemerritt.com, K-E-R-I-L-E-I-G-H-M-E-R-R-I-T-T.com. Twitter, at kerryleemerritt, but with one T on merit. And then I'm definitely going to be launching a YouTube channel and Patreon soon. So I'm going oh, to, awesome. yeah, I'm going to start. I've got a few under my belt. I've just got to edit of uh, different interviews with um, people involved in labor, agriculture, anything to do with the South or labor history. So definitely look forward to that. That sounds great. Hey, we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with us. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.